Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. So let me just pray for us once more. Lord Jesus, you are a good God and you have spoken to us. And that's what we're going to see today. It's that God speaks And so we come being immediately distinct from any religion that has ever existed because we start with a God who has spoken. And so we pray, Lord, that as we look at your word, that it changes us, that it brings to bear the effect that you would design it to have on us, that we are humbled and that there was someone and something that pre-existed us But through his grace and mercy, he not only created us, but has condescended to engage us with his word. So we are so grateful for that, Lord. Bless our time together today. We pray this in your name. Amen. In 1536, the Protestant reformer, William Tyndale, was martyred. And the reason for his martyrdom is unique considering what we think qualifies for martyrdom today. He wasn't in a closed country. He wasn't going to a foreign and hostile people. He wasn't defending some specific aspect of uh, Christ in front of a totalitarian regime. Instead, he was killed by the Catholic Church for translating the Bible into English. At that time, the Catholic Church refused to let anyone have a Bible which was not in the Latin translation of the original languages. And this was due in part that the Catholics were a little wary, and rightfully so, that should somebody read the Bible, they realize they have some suspect doctrines. But it was publicly so that they didn't trust the common man with the word of God. But Tyndale knew his Bible so well that he knew his God. And knew this was never to be the case, that God's word was never to be kept from his people. And one argument he had with a Catholic scholar, Tyndale said to this educated man, he said, it is my goal in life that a plowboy would know more of scripture than you do. It went over really well, really eased the tensions. <laughs> and Tyndale ultimately had to flee England and uh, head to the continent where he hid from Henry VIII and his minions who were tracking him down. And he wrote back to Henry VIII and he said this, he said, uh, I, will, I will surrender myself to English custody. I will never write another book. I will never translate another paragraph. I will never preach another sermon. I will never print another leaflet. I will endure whatever brutal pain and suffering you want to give to me as a criminal of the state if only you would provide an English translation to the people. Henry VIII said, no. They ultimately went and they captured William Tyndale. And as he was being burned at the stake, his final words were reported as, Oh, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. You see, William Tyndale gave his life for an often overlooked grace we take for granted in a world where it is on our phone and in our hands and in different translations And that is the wonderful privilege of God's word. What do you think about when you think about God's word? You think about the Bible, maybe a specific portion of the Bible, maybe even the law, the commands. Maybe it's a specific prophet. Maybe it's Jesus Christ. But probably a more important question is not just what do you think God's word is, but what posture do you take towards God's word? What is the attitude of your heart towards whatever it is you think God's word is? In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is preaching to God's people. He's about to cross the river into the promised land. And in our text today, Moses wants to prepare God's people to understand the nature of God through his word and to respond to it rightly. And we know this right off the bat because after a couple uh, weeks of historical prologue, it wasn't weeks for the people of Israel, it was one sermon, so the first 
20 minutes of the sermon, Moses finally says this. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 4 today. If you don't have Bibles, grab one in the back. Um, you can get up and go now. I won't assume you're leaving already. Um, give me time. It's only an hour and a half today. Uh, but grab Bible. This is a great series to have uh, a physical Bible in because we're flipping around a lot. Um, but in Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 through 2, this is how it opens. This is Moses speaking. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them. That, so here's a purpose statement, that you may live. It's pretty good. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And so immediately, Moses setting a tone. Listen. Listen to what? Listen to the rules, the statutes, and the law we saw in the end of verse 2. God's statutes, God's words, God's commands are about to be declared to God's people. And so remember, we looked at the three Ps that the whole Old Testament is after, that we see finally and fully at the end of the Bible in Revelation, there's God's people, that's the people of Israel, to be in God's place. At this point in the Bible, that place is the promised land, and to be in God's presence. And God's presence is going to be mediated through his law. Moses is preparing them to have all of that wonderful beauty, God's people, God's place, and God's presence and he says, this is going to be so good. These rules that are going to come, they're going to be so wonderful that if you understand them properly, you will not add to them and you will not subtract from them. You see, Moses knew he's about to enter the portion of his sermon where he begins to give rules. He begins to give commands. And he knows that as soon as those start coming, we have a tendency to respond poorly to those things. When we don't understand the significance of God's word, when we don't understand the nature of God's word, we're prone to either legalism or liberalism. And this is really something that has plagued the church of Christ for all the thousands of years dating back to Moses here. There are some who think that God's word isn't sufficient. And if God's word isn't sufficient, then we're going to add to it. And there are other people who see God's word and they think some of it is less important. Some of it is outdated. Some of it is distasteful. And so they seek to subtract from it. That's legalism, adding to it, liberalism, and removing from it. And I imagine that you yourself at various times have either fallen into legalism or liberalism when it comes to God's word, adding or subtracting, or perhaps you've been hurt by someone who has been legalistic or someone who has been liberal with God's word. But if we see the nature of God's word like Moses wants us to see, then when we see God's word, our response isn't going to be to add, and our response isn't going to be to remove. Our response is going to be to obey, to listen, to apply, and to obey. And his point is that we just saw Israel, if you are going into the land and you want to make it, you must learn to obey my word. And though there is no physical promised land for new covenant believers that God's calling us to go and take, the principle is true for us that if we want to make it into what Hebrews calls the rest of God, the eternal promised land, then you too must learn what it is to obey. You need to understand not only where God has placed his word, but the nature of his word and how we are to respond to it. And so in Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 43, we are going to see one thing today, and that's that God is preparing the hearts of his people to hear his rules and statutes. He knows our hearts, our legalistic and our liberal hearts, need to be prepared. We need to see God distinctly inside of this if we want to understand the laws properly. And so what we're going to see as we go through this is we're going to kind of see this, this theology, this picture of the God who speaks and our response to it. We're going to see four aspects of this God through our text and uh, the responses to it. And so this is what we're going to see if you benefit from an early outline. We're going to see four things. We're going to see the benevolent God, the speaking God, the jealous God, and the saving God. We're going to come back to those, and I'm going to make them longer. So don't panic if you're a note taker yet. And we're going to start, because Moses already started doing it, with the first point, which is this. The benevolent God, so that's the picture of God, and what's our response it is a privilege to obey him. 
the benevolent God and the privilege to obey him. I assume for most of you, obedience is not considered a privilege. Specifically in our individualistic culture, we would never equate benevolence to obedience. In fact, most of our cultural dreams are to rid ourselves from any system that seeks to make us obedient. We seek autonomy. We seek to be the ones who dictate to others. We don't ever want to be dictated to. But look at how Moses talks about this nature of what God is saying and those who are obeying in Deuteronomy 4, verses 3 through 8. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at the Al Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. They will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law I set before you today? So my wife and I, we have a privilege, both of our mothers live in town, and so weekly our kids go to grandma or oma's house, and while they're over there, they enjoy life, and when they come back, they tell us what life was like in the wild, wild west where there are no rules. It's like an outback steakhouse. It's just right. Netflix and chill, whipped cream on everything, no bedtimes. It's just chaos, and then they hand them back. Never once has my son gone to my mom or my mother-in-law's house and come back and he's just like, Dad, you don't understand. It was so wonderful. She gave us all these commandments, all of these rules. We had 30 minutes to watch TV and in five minutes we were to have had our teeth brushed and been in bed at eight with our water bottles filled and a snack having been eaten and we were to stay in our room and never come out until eight o'clock in the morning. You need to experience these rules. But isn't that what God just described? Isn't that what Moses says when the nations, when they hear, and it's interesting, as I read this this week, you know, you kind of read scripture, you get lost, you get excited about what's going on. Uh, When I was reading it this week, it's like when the nations see you, when they see you enjoying life, they'll say, what a wise and understanding people. But that's not what it says. It says when they hear these statutes, they will say, what a wise and understanding people. They will long for these rules. They want to know what God's people know. They want God to have spoken these things to them. And then Moses, like, he immediately starts worshiping. His quotation ends as if he's speaking from the nations, and he gets selfish. He's like, why would the nations want this? What is the source of our wisdom and understanding? He says, for what God, what great nation has a God so near to it as our God? Whenever we call to him. Or what great nation has rules so righteous? Righteous meaning uh, good, perfect, wonderful, effective as the rules that I am giving you today. Everyone's happy about these rules. And even through history, if you look at historic coaches in sports, there's always been coaches, whether it's Bill Walsh in football or Phil Jackson in basketball, that players long to be coached by. And when they show up to camp there, and the coach starts telling them something to do, their first response isn't, how dare you? (laughs) They long for it because they know that this is a good coach capable of doing great things. In our life, don't we often think, whether we're the Israelites hearing the law that's about to come or the New Testament Christians looking at the moral obligations that we looked at at the end of Ephesians, 
And we see the commands to obey and the commands to be holy. And we see them as a burden which needs to be overcome. But when Moses is talking to these people here, it's not the language of burden. It's the language of blessing, isn't it? Other people want what we have. We have this wonderful God. What a wonderful blessing to be under the authority of this benevolent God. When we have the commands of a God like the God of the Bible, it means two things, Moses says. First, it means that God has drawn near to you. We can hear him. He's come close to us, close enough to speak, close enough that you can even talk to him. What a wonderful thing. It's like Moses is just just blowing up with gratitude. He is so near. How near? Whenever we call to him, he hears. When can you call? Whenever you want to. Whenever you call to God, he is so wonderfully near to you. But then he also says, his second thing is that he has perfect rules, righteous rules. Rules which are effective to bring us what we want. They bring us joy, not suffering. They bring us delight, not despair. In fact, look at what the psalmist says. So we, as New Testament Christians, Paul talks about the law a lot. And Paul talks about how how vain it is to find righteousness in the law apart from Jesus. And what that does is it makes us, it poisons our mind as to how whenever we hear the law, whenever he rules, it's always bad. But it's just a matter of how those are applied to us. And look at how the psalmist talks about the law in Psalm 119, 17 through 24. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I might behold the wondrous things out of your law. You know what he's talking about here? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Like we read that and we think of We think of like Psalm 23 that's going on here. We think of Matthew. We think of Revelation where every tear is wiped from our eyes. He's thinking prescriptions to priests. And he's saying, wow, wondrous is this. I am a sojourner on the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with how burdensome your commands are. No, no. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Amen, if your kids say that, right? (laughs) You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. So there we see a theme that's going to be developed. It is through the keeping of God's word that contempt and scorn is removed. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimony are my delight. They are my counselors. God's law is a benevolent gift to his people who have a privilege to obey. When we obey, when God commands us, commands It means you should know, when you encounter God's commands in Scripture, you should know that God is near enough to care and able enough to help. Near enough to care, able enough, wise enough to actually make a difference. Wouldn't that be great if you had someone in your life who is not only close enough to care, but powerful enough to do something about it? Smart enough to know what the way forward is when everything else seems clouded. Well, in God's Word, we have that because we have that God. He has been gracious and kind, and that's what Moses wants these people to see. Whatever is about to come, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be amazing. You're going to stand in awe at the nearness and the wisdom of this God. And so for you, if you don't have this appetite, if you read Psalm 119, you're like, what is this guy reading? Maybe you take Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 through 8 this week, where the nations are proclaiming, what a wise and understanding people. And Moses says, who has a God so near to us as this God? Maybe that becomes your prayer in your Bible reading this week. Before you read your Bible, you say, God, give me this appetite. Let me see the privilege your word has that I might get to hear you, that I might get to understand, and that I might get the privilege to obey. It's a privilege to obey a God like this. Moses continues in verses 9 through 14. So here's a bigger chunk, so stay with me here. Starts out with two commands. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen 
lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children. So them, that's those the events, that's what you've seen. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on that day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. Remember we saw Horeb in chapter 1. That was where God talked to Moses on the mountain and gave the law uh, before they went into their desert wanderings for 40 years. Uh, and the Lord said to me, verse 10, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came and you stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. So it's actually, it's the ten words. That's what the Hebrew word is. It's commandments just because traditionally we've called it that. But it's the ten words, and that's important. How many times God is using words, voice, speak in this text? He gives the ten words, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. So how do we know? These wonderful things that Moses is saying that comes from following God that's wonderful and nations will want it and it will only be for your good. How do we actually know it will be for your good? Because God has said so. The first principle of being a Christian is that we serve a God who has spoken, who has shown us about himself. And didn't we just see this in this text? In this text, we see our second point. We see the speaking God and the privilege to hear him. The speaking God and the privilege to hear him. And I love what Moses did here. Again, Moses is a brilliant preacher. Because in this text, his concern is, you see that in verse 9, that people would forget what their eyes have seen, and then their hearts would in turn forget, and then they will have totally forgotten what God has done for them. And indeed, one of the saddest things that you will witness as part of a church, as a Christian, is you'll witness people who are forgetful, who begin to forget what their eyes have seen. Their hearts forget. And so they do not consider God or what he has done at all. And so Moses knows these people are prone to forget. Prone to forget what they have seen. And he is calling them to, to recognize, don't forget what you've seen. But then he tells them not what they have seen, but what they've heard. Did you catch that? Moses says in verse 9, don't forget what your eyes have seen. And then he doesn't go on to describe the plagues. He doesn't go on to describe the Red Sea. He doesn't go on to describe physical miracles. He goes on to describe the scene where God spoke. Look at the emphasis in verses 11 through 13. This is all, don't forget what you've seen. Don't forget what your eyes have seen. He's being very clear with his language. But what does he want you to see? This, verse 11 and following. And you came and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, clouds, and gloom. That's pretty visible. But that's not the amazing thing. Amazing thing starts in verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on the two tablets of stone. So on the mountain, the language is God spoke. It's like this continual. God was speaking. He was continually speaking, but you saw no form. It's like the people heard God and they're waiting for God to like come around the corner. They're waiting like for the Wizard of Oz, for the curtain to be pulled back to see who is this God. But in all the speaking, there was only speaking. There was no form. Why is Moses emphasizing this speakingness, this covenant that was remarkably a covenant declared verbally with his words? And what did that look like? It looked like the ten words. He wants us to know the way in which God has chosen to reveal himself as God 
and the way in which God has chosen to bring people into his covenant as God is through his word. It is only in God's word that we can know God as a covenant people. That's how he chose to do it. You saw no form, only voice. You see, until we get to heaven, Christians need to learn to see with their ears. The greatest way we see God is to hear God. That's what faith is. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us, right? Is we need to learn to see with our ears. We see because it is an assurance. But our assurance is in the spoken word of God. And if you don't understand this, if you don't understand that it's through God's word that we can know him and be saved by him, then it's going to be hard to understand what it looks like to believe, to follow, and to worship this God. You've heard, kind of the, I'm sure you've heard the pluralistic parable, the elephant, right? I've, I've maybe shared it with you before. Like there's the four dudes and they have the elephant and they go and they, somebody touches the wall, they're blind, or they touch the side of the elephant and this guy says it's like a wall. The other guy touches the trunk and they say it's like a snake. The other guy touches the, the, the tusk and says it's like a spear. And the point of the parable is, is that all of our religions are all equally as true, just from different perspectives. We're all grasping at this elephant and it is an elephant, but your experience with it gets different language, different vernacular. So we're fine to do what we're going to do so long as we understand this perspective. That's kind of how the parable goes. But this parable, and often our lives, misses the point of what Moses is saying to us today. The elephant talks. God declares to us who he is. We're not left in silence. We're not left guessing as to what it is that they're encountering. I am the Lord. He makes it clear for us. And he describes the fire. He describes the darkness. But he's like, that's not the miracle. The miracle is the speaking. God spoke to his people. Do you understand the privilege of a God who speaks? Let me bring you in to an idolatrous worship service. We'll now take tithes and offerings. But God speaks, his voice thunders. By his word, the universe was created. We serve a God who speaks. Can you imagine if I never spoke? My career is speaking. If I never spoke, there would be minimal difference in this world. If God never spoke, there would be no world. If God never spoke in this text, there would be no covenant. There would be no salvation. And Moses knows that. He knows the privilege it is to hear this God. In fact, look twice the language he uses. Once in what we've already read, look at verse 10. And how the Lord... On that day you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb. The Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words. He was giving them permission to hear. And then look at verse 36, which we'll look at in a little bit. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. It was a permissive privilege to hear God's voice. It was because God wanted us to hear him that he spoke. When God declared, when God spoke, when he declared his covenant, we need to remember that God was not speaking for his benefit. God didn't get bored in eternity and just want to hear himself talk. We know people like that. I have a wonderful four-year-old daughter who sometimes just likes to hear herself talk. That's not how God is. God didn't need a covenant. He was under no obligation. He made the world. He made it beautiful. He made it perfect. Adam and Eve sinned. He could have been like, enjoy. But almost every time in Scripture that God enters into a covenant, it comes on the heels of our failure. We sinned and death entered into the world, and God with his word has promised to redeem us. 
In fact, it is only in God's word in Deuteronomy 4 that we can have the covenant of salvation. The only way to know God, I want you to hear this. This is important in our culture today. The only way to know God, the only way to be saved by God is that God would willingly give us his word. And he has. Moses wants the people to see this privilege. But the problem is, we'll see this all through Deuteronomy, the people can't obey his word. They fail time and time again. They have the word. It is perfect. It is clear. It is there. It was wonderful and thundering at Sinai. But this word in and of itself was ineffective to produce in them a heart of obedience. This word couldn't keep the covenant. But this is why the birth of Jesus is so amazing. This is why Deuteronomy is so important because knowing this, look at how John describes the birth of Jesus in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, that is the word, not anything made that, there was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, who is this word? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. When Moses declared the saving covenant of God's righteous word, right? We saw that, God's righteous word in verse 8, his righteous rules. God knew that one day that righteous word would become flesh. One day Jesus Christ wouldn't attempt to apply righteousness from the outside, which is what the law is doing. It is good, it is perfect, it is able to do it, but it can't penetrate our hearts. But instead the word became flesh. Flesh. It became righteousness embodied for us. Jesus would not be a word like the law, which mediates. Jesus would be a word applied. It would be righteousness applied to us in Jesus, who was faithful to God's word. Jesus, who is righteous. So that those who hope in him have that covenant, the covenant of God's greater word. Hebrews 1 says, long ago in many places God spoke through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son. That doesn't mean that Jesus exists and the rest of scripture is removed. But it means that Jesus is the climax of all of God's promises. Jesus is the word, the covenant that gets us all the way back to God. So what does this mean for you? It means that if you want to know God, if you want to be saved by God, you must know him through his word and through nothing else. You might know God through church. You might know God through his fa- your family. You might know God through nature. But none of those is the word that saves. It is Jesus Christ who took away our deadness of heart and paid the penalty of it so that our ears could be opened and our hearts changed to obey God in all places. You see, Francis Schaeffer says this wonderfully. He says that, uh, this is for you guys who like philosophy, he says that because God speaks, there's no longer an epistemological problem, meaning there's no longer a question of why are we here. No longer an epistemological problem, now it's a spiritual one. God has spoken, but Jesus overcomes the spiritual problem for us so we can hear the good, benevolent news of God. And we need to hear this. We need to understand the centrality of God's word because look at the threats that come next in verses 15 through 20 and then 23 through 24. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day the Lord your God spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, in the likeness of male or female, 
the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness, do you hear the repetition? The likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the, that is in the water under the earth. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven. You will be drawn, or you be drawn away, bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people for his own inheritance as you are this day. So skip down to verse 23. In the meantime, Moses reminds them that they screwed up and he's going to get punished for it. Verse 23, he's not going to let that go throughout the book. Uh, Verse 23, take care lest you forget what the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make a carved image in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. So there's an important distinction. They they, they go tongue and groove here. In verses 9 through 14, Moses says, remember what you saw. You heard God speak. And then in verses 15 through 24, he says, remember what you didn't see. (laughs) No form. Only words. Because God took no form on the mountain, we need to realize that we will always be suggestive to gods of human form. Moses knew that as soon as the people crossed over the land of, or the river, into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, that they were going to be confronted by Canaan gods galore. And even though God spoke to them at Horeb, he knows that our hearts, he knows your hearts, will always drift towards what is physical and immediate, won't we? And he highlights this at, we talked earlier in verse 3 about the events at Baal Peor. At Baal Peor, the people of Israel The people of God, the people who heard God talk to them in fire on the mountain, worshipped Baal, the pagan god of Canaan, in God's midst. And they perished. That's why Moses says, but you are those who held fast to the Lord. To worship idols is to break covenant with God. It is to reject the saving word that God has given that we need. And the danger that we need to understand is that Generally, when we think of idols in the Old Testament, we never see Israel say, I have no God, he has given me no law, now I'm worshiping this idol. Instead, it's, it's syncretistic, meaning they take idols from other cultures and they let that idol represent God in some way, shape, or form. This is what happened when Moses was on the mountain. When he was on Horeb and he came down, he saw that Aaron had made golden calves and Aaron didn't say, behold, Israel, these are your new gods. Follow them. Instead, he says, behold, Israel, these golden calves are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. See, dangerous idolatry often sounds like Christianity. It sounds like you're worshiping God. See, we can say things that what it's really doing is putting a mediator between you and God that God has removed. If we say things like, I can only worship God in nature, that's idolatrous. That's exactly what Moses, Moses is attacking the idols of Missoula. The mountains, the birds, the trees, the sun, the elk jumping onto your, your trailer. Don't worship those things. He's saying, if you say, I will worship God, I will get my life right when I have a college degree, when I'm an adult, when I have a healthy relationship, that's idolatrous. And God in this text is saying, I am God, look at me. I am the only God. I am the living God. Worship me. And Moses says, this is because he's a jealous God. When we think of jealousy, we think of petty arguments, but that's not how the word is being used here. It is a jealous God, meaning God desires your exclusive devotion. Verses 19 through 20, God says, why would you worship the moon and the stars? Anyone can look at those. You're my covenant people. I've given you something greater. I've given you myself. I am jealous. I am a consuming fire that you would worship me exclusively. And this can sound arrogant. Certainly there are people, if you're at the university or reading books, who would say this is arrogant, that God is this zealous for his own glory, for this exclusivity of worship in your heart. But 
if we think about it, isn't this really good for us? Isn't this a huge benefit to us as humans? Moses says in here that if you worship idols, you end up serving them. Why do you serve them? Because you want them to give you something. You want them to say something. You want them to say you've made it. Say you've done what it takes. So you've reached the end line. Say, well done, good and faithful servant. But the problem is, idols don't talk. Nothing you pursue, which is not God, can ever say, you've done enough, good work. Rest. Because they don't talk. And this leads to paranoia. This leads to a constant fear of performance. And this isn't new. Back in the 7th century, so, so not too far along from where Moses is writing, they actually found a prayer. I think it was an Assyrian prayer. It's really long. It's the 7th century BC, and I just want to read part of it. This is just a portion. But the rest of it is probably four times as long, and it gets at the same feeling. This is what it says. May my Lord's angry heart be reconciled. May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the goddess I do not know be reconciled. May the God... Whoever he is, be reconciled. I do not know what wrong I have done. It sounds like Dr. Seuss now. I do not know what sin I have committed. I do not know what abomination I have perpetrated. I do not know what taboo I have violated. If there's a God, if I did something wrong, I'm going to say all these words and hope that something sticks. Because I know something's not right. In our culture, we've given up a supernatural worldview. So no one prays this prayer. But we have these same hopes. To the spouse, I have. To the maybe better spouse that one day might come along. To the car I think I need. To the degree I hope will provide. To the need I cannot yet identify. Be reconciled. We feel the weight of anxiety when we are uncertain of which object we worship can actually help us. But this is why it is such a privilege to have a jealous God, a jealous, benevolent, speaking God who says, I am God. Worship me and no other. That clears the woods. And it's in Jesus where we see this most clearly. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access into this grace. How do we get this exclusive God who makes himself so wonderfully clear that we say, this is easy? It is through faith into his grace which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Man, clear hopes, present assurance. That's the privilege of worshiping the exclusive and only God of Scripture. And he invites you into it. What a privilege to worship a God who wants to be worshiped like this and has given the means to do it in Jesus. Man, doesn't that shape how we're going to sing in a little bit, in 45 minutes still? Yeah, it should. And we must worship him. If God exists, if God speaks, if he is benevolent, he is, we are under an obligation of worship. And look at what happens if we reject this word. If the Israelites were to reject this law, if we are to reject the form. See, what we think of is later on a, on a mountain, God speaks in Mark, and there is a form on the mountain. Jesus, transfigured, made radiant. Jesus is the true form. He's the answer. He was the one behind the fire. And we must learn to see him. And we must learn to obey him. Because look at what happens if we reject God's word. Verses 25 through 28. When you father children and children's children, in other words, when you've been in the land for a long time, Grandpa, and have grown old in the land. If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, 
I call, so he's, he, this is like a courtroom, he's calling witnesses. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord your God will drive you. At that point, when the living God has left you, what are you left with? And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Rejecting God's word never gets us what we want. We always think it do. We always think it will. We think we can choose what's best. We think God's word is oppressive. But it just subjugates us to things which can't do anything. But as we've seen in Deuteronomy, here Moses is predicting what we're going to see in the prophets, that Israel will reject God's word. They will be carried off by other nations. But as we'll see constantly through Deuteronomy, God always provides a way of escape for his people. Your life doesn't have to be defined by God's judgment, even though you really sinned against him. Because look at what happens next in verses 29 through 31. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If, what does it look like to find God? If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation, all these things, the exile, the punishment, when they come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. See, we will break covenant. We will forget God's word, but God will not forget his word to his people. This is where we see the last picture and privilege, is that there is a saving God and the privilege to be loved by him. The saving God, God will call you back, God will save you, God will be faithful, and it is our privilege to be loved by him. Moses says, for those who have sinned, For those in Israel, for those today who feel far and distant from God, captive to your oppressors, serving false gods, there's a way forward. God will not forget you. And what does it look like? What does it look like to come back? What does it look like to experience that salvation? Return and obey. It's that simple. What does it look like to respond to God's faithful covenant even when we're unfaithful? Look back at verses 29 and 30. But from there, that's in judgment, You will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in tribulation, all these things come upon you in the latter days. You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Return and obey. We love, especially this my generation of Christians, we love the idea of wholeheartedly seeking out God. But God here defines what that looks like. How do you know if you're wholeheartedly seeking after God? You return and obey. To seek after God is to obey God. To love God is to obey God. That doesn't mean those who are God's people will never disobey, but it does mean that we have in our lives a pattern of obedience at all costs, and we are quick to come back, to repent and obey. And the truth is, as a church, you will have members, people who at one point were brothers and sisters in Christ with you who will fall prey to these same sins that Moses is talking about. They'll forget. They'll disobey. They'll be idolatrous. And in those moments, what do you do? You pursue them with this. If you claim to be a Christian. You're going to sit across from someone and you're going to say these words to them. If you claim to be a Christian, if you really are seeking after God with all your heart, you will return and obey. That's the mark of God's people. That's what God's people do. They return and obey his voice. But for the errant believer and for the non-believer, maybe that's you in here today, The question you ask is, why should I? Why should I turn 
Why should I come back? Moses knows the people of Israel are going to go into the land and they're going to get comfortable and they're going to learn to love their idols and they're not going to want to go anywhere and they're going to be old and they're going to think this is how they've always done it. Why should they change their ways? Why should I listen to this God? This is how Moses closes. Another bigger passage, which is just feel what Moses wants us to feel. For ask now of the days that are past, this is verse 32, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth. And now he goes the other way and asks from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? The question's no, in case you're wondering. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation from himself in the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown. Why? That you might know the Lord is God, and there is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, who brought you out of Egypt with his own presence. That is, he brought you out personally by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath and there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and commandments which I command you today that it might go well with you and with your children after you that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Why did God speak? Why did God ordain? Why did God command? Why should you Obey. Because he loves you. Did you see that? Because God so desperately wants to bring you into the inheritance of rest. Because of all the things that vie for your worship and your servitude, what God has proved more capable than this God? over and over and over again. Who loves like this God? Who took the breach of covenant and did not immediately punish all humanity, but instead waited to send his son as the faithful word to die for your rebellion so that his righteousness might not be applied externally, but internally through the regeneration of the Spirit so that we might have more than a physical land, but an eternal inheritance. God loved your fathers and he redeemed them out of Egypt. And how did he redeem them? By his word. I am calling my children out of Egypt. Here you are in the wilderness. How is God leading you? Through his word. Here is my law. Obey. God is bringing you into the promised land. How are you going to have fidelity there? Through his word and by his faithfulness. Don't we see what Tyndale saw? Oh Lord, open the King of England's eyes. For we need a word like this. Because to know God and his word and to respond to it is the only way to be loved by God. To respond to the word of God that took form on a mountain and died on the cross is the only way to be loved by God. I want to say that again. 
to respond to God's word, which took form on the mountain and died on the cross, is the only way to be loved by God. Which means anytime we encounter God's word and it ruffles us and it irritates us and it scratches us, we remind ourselves that it is a proof that God loves us, that he wants what's best for us, that he has provided someone for us, that you would know there is the Lord who is God in heaven and on earth and there is no other. Come and be loved by this God. How do you know you love him? Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And the Old Testament understands this. It's all grace in the Old Testament. It wasn't, Israel, here's my law, obey them and I'll love you. He says, I love you and I brought you out. Now obey me. Obey me as a testament to my love. Obey me that you might experience my love. Obey me that you might enjoy the land and live long in it. It makes me think of that song, how marvelous, how wonderful, so my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Listen to this in closing. Isaiah 51 says this. Listen to the word that's gone out. Listen to what is yours because God speaks in Jesus. Listen to what is yours when you're reading the Bible this week and you're reading God's word to you. Listen to what is yours. Listen to the privilege. Listen to the wonder. And then worship this God. Verses four through eight. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation, for a law. See that? It's not the law there. A law. It's pointing to a singular representative of God's word. A law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in a like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, to the people in whose heart is the law. Jesus brought that to us. He has put the law in our hearts. This is you. Therefore, look at this confidence. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. What a wise and understanding people. For what great nation has a God so near to us as our God whenever we call to him? Will you call to this God through Jesus Christ? Will you say in Christ and forevermore that what God has given us a righteous rule like he has today? For this is our hope, that it might go well with us and we might live long in the land. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how good. How good that a word spoken 3,000, 4,000 years ago is this good today because it is not a dead word. It is not my word. It is not Moses' word. It is not the church's word. It is God's word. Living and active. Dividing the flesh and bone, piercing the soul and spirit, laying us bare before God. 
So may we be found faithful in Christ Jesus and respond rightly. May we see the privilege of this benevolent speaking God and be saved by him. Whatever follows, whatever you command, Lord, open our eyes so that we might see the beauty of your word. We pray this in your name. Amen.